You ever have one of those moments? The kids are welcome to Children's Church, by the way. <laughs> you ever have one of those moments where you're half reading something or you're half watching something or you're half listening to something and then all of a sudden it grabs your attention? Like all of time stands still and all you can do is stare at whatever it is that's just got your eyes. I had a moment like this while reading the Bible the other day. It was as if a verse left, leapt entirely off of the page and into my heart. It comes from Genesis 39. You can take a look on the screens with me. Genesis 39, just the first part of verse two. It looks like this screen is not active. Should I do something to turn this on? We'll let someone else figure this out. Up on the screens up here, it says, the Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. And it stopped me dead in my tracks. The Lord was with him. And it gets me thinking, how would my life change if I believed that God was with me in everything? How about you? How might your outlook on life your attitude in life, I'm talking your confidence in life, drastically shift if we knew beyond all doubt that the Lord was with us in every situation we ever found ourselves in. I'm talking this bad breakup, this stressful marriage, this issue with family, this failing grade, this difficult diagnosis, maybe this undesirable move from one place to the next that you don't even want to live in. What about this terrible loss that you find yourselves in, whatever it might be? How would my outlook on life change if I really, truly believed that God was with me? no matter what. Like if I knew, hey, God's in this, he has a plan. This might seem completely out of control and painful, but I'm telling you, God is still with me in this. How, I mean, it's hard to believe that sometimes, right? But imagine for a moment that you did. That's what we're going to see today. That's what we're going to look at this morning, suppose for a moment that you really knew that in all this, God was with me. So we're gonna look at that today and we're gonna get super practical with it. But before we can actually dive into what a life with God really looks like and how to cultivate it for ourselves, I am reminded of just how often we find ourselves settling for less, right? We settle for less. A guy by the name of Sky Jathani offers some powerful insight into this. And I'm going to borrow some of his language and drawings because they're that insightful. But he begins by setting up a sentence like this. Life blank God. Life blank God. And then he articulates four postures. We've got life under God. Life over God. 
life from God and life for God. I'm telling you, today's a day to write notes if you don't normally write notes. This is, today's a day to draw pictures too, by the way. We'll get to that in a second. But he says there's four ways that we live our life. We try to live our life under God or we try to live our life over God. We live our life from God and we try to live our life for God. And then after doing so, he contrasts those four non-life-giving postures with the life-giving posture of life with God. Life with God, showing how these four postures fall short of what God's been after from the beginning of time and what he's working all of history toward on that final day, and that is life with God. Now, for some of you, the light bulb just went off. It's profound. It's subtle, but it's profound. But for the rest of us, it's hard for us to grasp. I'm telling you, it took me a whole book of reading this to understand this. And so I, I want to share with you just how easy it is to settle for these lesser postures. And then we're going to look into the life with God that he so freely offers. So we're going to tease each of those out a little bit, see how they fall short, find out why we settle for less, and then discover how we can find the true and better way of life with God instead of the counterfeits. Sound good? Okay, let's dig in. First, life under God. Life under God. Telling you, these drawings are really insightful. I've used these in counseling myself, trying to help someone understand what they're living. So here's God, right, the triangle, and the person's uh, underneath it, right? You ever feel that pressure like God's on top of you? Okay, listen, the world can be crazy and difficult to manage sometimes. It's a dangerous place, right? And since the beginning of time, mankind has had to try to navigate how to survive. So from predators to natural disasters and diseases, if there's one thing we can count on, it's that we can't count on anything. And so if that's the case, we have to be prepared. We have to be vigilant. We have to be on the lookout unless, of course, you could strike a deal with some higher power. So whether it was the ritual of rain dances in an attempt to try and get rain for their crops or throwing virgins into angry volcanoes to curb the wrath of the gods, religion has become just one of many adaptations humans have tried over the centuries to try and navigate through the difficult uncontrollables of our life. And this same mentality, I'm telling you, This kind of adherence to ritual and religious traditions can creep into the church as well. And it becomes our primary mode of thinking and relating to God of Christianity too. You see a great example of this in Genesis 28. Genesis 28, I'll paint the scene. Jacob has just left the only home he's ever known because he's got to run away from his older brother Esau that he duped out of Esau's rightful blessing. And so Jacob is now on his way to go get a wife, to find his wife and and start a new life somewhere else. And so he's in this major time of transition and transitions are unknowns. So he doesn't know where he's going to end up. He doesn't know who he'll end up with. He doesn't know what he's going to do. It is entirely unknown and into the unknown, to quote Elsa, into the unknown, uncontrollable time, he does this. Check it out. Chapter 28, verse 20. Then Jacob made a vow saying, if God will be with me 
and will keep me in this way that I go and will give me bread to eat and clothing to wear so that I come again to the Lord, my father's house in peace. Then the Lord shall be my God. And then he continues in verse 22. And of all that you give me, God, I will give you a full tenth. So he's like, God, I'm even gonna tithe. That's what he says. So this is life under God at its finest. Life under God is a bargain. And it views God as a bargainer. We'll get to that in, uh, views God as a bargainer. We'll get to that in a moment. The belief is this, if God, if God, if I'm moral enough and I do enough for God, and if I scratch God's back, then God will scratch mine. It's a bargain, it's a deal. We take care of each other, me and God. That's life under God. Now, here's a great visual. Take a look at this now. Here's the drawing. That's actually not the drawing. You saw it a moment ago. It's got this picture of a world. There we go. And you've got God above it. And then you've got this little, here we go. Thanks, guys. Awesome. We've got rituals, rules, morality. That's kind of like, a little, uh, little puppetry thing going on, right? To try and control this world. We just got to do the rules. We got to do the rituals. We got to keep our morality. And what do you see happens to God in the process? He's actually just a puppet that we're using to try and keep the world safe for us. You see a great example of this. Uh, and and you, know, you know it goes wrong because the moment that God doesn't pan out for you, the moment that disaster hits, the moment that disease strikes, the moment that trouble comes, guess what happens? You get angry because God didn't keep up his end of the bargain. Great example of this, one NFL player from a few years back, he had just missed what would have been the game-winning catch. Now that's a tough break. But what happened later that night, he tweets this on Twitter. It shows what happens when life under God doesn't go as we hoped. Here's what he wrote. He said, I praise you 24 seven. And this is how you do me. You expect me to learn from this? How? I'll never forget this. And as if that wasn't clear enough, he adds ever. (laughs) Now I can't dog on him too much though, because I know that I've been there too. How about you? You had this deal with God. God's got my back because I've got his sort of thing. It's like Jacob's if then prayer. God, if you do this, then I will make you Lord. Then I will trust you. Then I will follow you. If you heal me, if you fix this, if you do what I'm asking, then I'll worship. Then I'll surrender. Then that's little more than trying to bribe God. So I encourage you this week, look into your life and consider this. What are your if-then prayers? Have you been bargaining with God? Now that's life under God. It's crushing and it doesn't deliver. Next, life over God. Life over God. This one you got, I'm kind of standing on top and he's just kind of, looking over God. Life over God is similar to life under God in the sense that the world is a dangerous, fear-filled place. The difference though, 
is life over God assumes that if we learn enough about God, then it becomes predictable enough, the world does, and I can work it out to my benefit. See, I've always been fascinated by watches. I just love how, you know, all the the internal timer, the ticking, the incremental uh, movements and gears and the the cogs that just work together seamlessly in this beautiful device. But even as I start describing it this way, it all kind of becomes predictable. This does that, this moves that, that triggers this, which is just calculated. See, instead of life... Uh, Instead of God being a bargainer, life over God views God as a watchmaker. He he puts it together. God, if there even is one, you see a lot of atheists with this perspective. Uh, You know, he set the world in motion, put all the pieces in place, wound it up and just lets it run. Our task then as human beings is to understand this life. It's to deduce the laws and the principles and the, the cogs and wheels and moving parts, the laws of gravity and thermodynamics or Kepler's planetary laws or even relativity and E equals MC squared. These are just mankind's attempts over the years at trying to understand how the world works, allowing us the ability then to more safely navigate through a tumultuous place. Here's a good illustration of this. That the more we learn about the laws and principles of the world, the more we can navigate this world and the less we need God. So we just kind of shoo him out of the picture. Now, believe it or not, this kind of thinking creeps into the church too. 10 steps to a better life. Seven financial basics, or I'll own it. I've seen this in the world of church planting and pastoral ministry. Five ways to grow a dynamic church. (laughs) 10 metrics for healthy revitalization. On and on the list goes. If we just had the principles, the laws in place, the non-negotiables, if we could figure out how the watch works and reproduce it, then what need is there even for God anymore? That is the essence of life over God. A pastor from China came to visit a friend in the U.S. a few years ago. They toured various parts of the country, observing various churches and ministries. And at the end of the trip, the American pastor asked the Chinese pastor, hey, what do you think of all the incredible things happening here in the States? And the Chinese pastor turns to his American friend and says, it truly is amazing what you have been able to build without prayer. A life over God could be characterized by self-sufficiency. It's predictable. All the ducks are in a row. And the question you and I must reflect on personally is this. If God is not needed in your life, then is God even in your life? Where is our dependence on God? Where is our trust in God? Really consider, is God even needed to pull off your life? And if not, then how can you tell me he's even part of it at all? Let's move on to the next one. Life from 
God. You see, here's God. Here's the, the thing that the guy is taking from God. Before the days of Google, back when your choice of search engine was limited to dial-up speeds and yahoo.com, there was a beloved, a personally beloved search engine by the name of askjeeves.com. Anybody remember Ask Jeeves? Yeah, come on, come on, come on. Yeah, okay, three of us, awesome. (laughs) I loved askjeeves.com. Because it was like for the next three and a half hours of non-Google Fiber speeds, I had this special personal butler at my disposal to help me navigate the interwebs and find what I was looking for. Whatever I wanted, Ask Jeeves knew how to deliver. Now we've considered the shortcomings of life under God and life over God and the faulty premise that each one brings and projects onto God that, you know, we know that God is not a bargainer trying to uh, make a deal. And we know that God is not just a watchmaker who sets time and leaves it alone. But here we find that God also is not just a cosmic butler, but that's what life from God tries to turn him into. Just a butler. He's not your Jeeves, right? And yet life from God attempts to view him in that way. Now now we know from other places in the Bible that none of us are self-made, right? Like all things, every good and perfect gift is from God. So in a sense, life from God sounds biblical. And it is in the sense of depending on God and realizing that all things, all of life is a gift from him. But the posture of life from God distorts the truth by making God merely a dispenser of goods and services. He's no longer the God that we owe our lives to because what we're really after isn't a God at all. We just want his stuff. I need more peace in my life, so I'm going to go to God. I need more ease or comfort in my life, so I'm going to God. I need more hope in my life, so I'm going to... We just want his stuff. We don't want him. And if I had to venture a guess as to what the dominant posture of the American Christian today is, I would say it's this. Life from God, hands down. Give me, give me, give me, give me. You know, what's in it for me? How does this meet my needs? You know, I'm talking about consumerism. And whether it's going to a restaurant or shopping or finding a church, getting married, you name it, we see this attitude play out. A great illustration of life from God orbit would look like this. Self at the center, other people in my gravitational pull, and God is merely a planet that revolves all around me. How many relationships do you know with somebody who thinks of them as the sun in the middle? Don't look to the person next to you, it's okay. (laughs) But we know what this is like. But how do we do the same thing with God? You see a great example of this in the story of the prodigal son from our reading plan in Luke 15 this week. The younger brother decides he doesn't want the father anymore. He just wants the father's stuff. He shouts, give me my inheritance, which in that day would have been like, pops, just die already so I can have what I want. 
desiring the gifts of God, but despising God himself. That is the state of life from God. So the question for us to consider in determining whether or not we operate from this posture is this. If God never answered a single prayer of yours, if he never delivered on anything you ever asked for, if in your estimation, following God has only brought you harm, ill, difficulty, and pain, would God still be enough for you? More simply, do you only go to God when you need something? Pretend for a moment that this box is God. And if this box is God, then life from God would look something like this. God, I need more time in my life. God, I want a new car. God, I need you to come and solve my problems. God, right? God, I, uh, I want a higher paying job. God, I want more money. God, I got one more thing. I want a Pegasus. <laughs> No, would you make my dreams come true, God? Right? How often do we do this? We, we make it that God is just this person we go to when we need something from him. That's what life from God looks like. And many come into faith and come into our churches thinking this way. We come in as consumers. We, we don't know any better, right? It's just the air that we breathe as Americans in our culture today. Give me, give me, give me. You hear it during the church Yelp reviews of I like the worship or I didn't like the worship or I love the sermon or that preacher, what does he think he's doing? Like on and on, everything orbits around me And so all the church strategy books out there will tell pastors, hey, if you're gonna get your people to grow, you've gotta help them stop seeing themselves as consumers and start becoming contributors, right? They gotta gotta start using their gifts. They they gotta uh, start serving. They they gotta tithe. They've gotta go and witness. The church then becomes about moving people from one box of life from God to this next box of life for God, life for God. Now here's where it's scary. Life for God sounds biblical. Life for God is where you find meaning it's where you find purpose, right? It's, it's like how you really make an impact for the kingdom. Life over God says, God, I'm giving you my dreams. God, I'm gonna take a cheaper car instead of the one I want. God, God, I, I'm gonna give you my time. God, I'm gonna give you my money. God, I give it all to you, all to you, all to you until eventually you discover that you are empty and there's nothing left. God, I just want to add value. God, I just want to serve you. God, I'm going to help. God, I'm going to serve. God, you're going to burn out is what's really going to happen. And all that you're going to be left with is bitterness. Finish this song for me. Broccoli, celery, gotta be. Yeah, okay. So you guys know this one. Well, the creator of VeggieTales, Phil Vischer, was raised in a life for God environment. 
his perceived significance was connected to how big an impact he could make for God. In order to stave off feelings of being insignificant, the lure then for him of this posture was to measure his worth by how much he could accomplish for God. So naturally, as VeggieTales grew into the empire that it became, Vischer was feeling pretty great. That is, until the company a few years later fell into a fiery tailspin and he lost everything in 2003. Now, Vischer has been very forthright about all of this, and you can read about it on his blog or his book that is so well uh, titled, Me, Myself, and Bob, the Tomato, right? In the book, he talks about some realizations he had to come to as he began questioning the premise of the life for God values he'd inherited from youth. Here's what he says. The more I dove into scripture, the more I realized I had been deluded. I had grown up drinking a dangerous cocktail, a mix of the gospel, the Protestant work ethic, and the American dream. The savior I was following seemed in hindsight, equal parts Jesus, Ben Franklin, and Henry Ford. My eternal value was rooted in what I could accomplish. This is life for God. And it is close. I mean, it is so close, dangerously close, but it doesn't deliver. And it leaves you with nothing. Nothing but bitterness. We see this demonstrated in the story of the prodigal son again, but this time, Jesus talks about the older brother. So after the younger brother has come to his senses, returns back to the father, the father lavishly welcomes him in and forgives him and throws this epic party celebrating his return. The story picks up with this, Luke 15, 28. Take a look. Jesus says, but the older brother was angry and refused to go in. So his father comes out and entreats him. But the older brother answers his father, look, dad, wow, right? I could not talk to my parents that way. But he says, look, these many years I've served you. I never disobeyed your command. And yet you never gave me a young goat that I would celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours, you can't even call him his brother. When this son of yours comes, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you kill the fattened calf for him. He's like, look at everything I did for you, dad. I did it all. I've always been here. I've served you. I never disobeyed. Where's my party? Where's my reward? Do you hear the resentment? The bitterness? Life for God leaves you bitter, especially toward those who don't quite live for God as much as you think you do. You can't celebrate with them. You can't celebrate with them because you see it as unfair treatment. And yet, even when we come to God with this posture of entitlement, demanding rewards, pointing fingers. This is the part that breaks me, that broke me this week reading it. Look at verse 31. 
He says, the father says to the older brother, son, you are always with me. And all I have is yours. The father, God responds, my son, my daughter, you are always with me. You get me. Life for God looks a lot like a saving faith because it does all these great things for the sake of the kingdom. But if you find yourself coming up dry or bitter or angry or burned out afterwards, that's the indicator. You've been mistaking doing things for God as living life with God. A couple years ago, we worked through a few letters, the epistles by uh, an incredible man of God named the Apostle Paul. Now that's a guy that you would say lived his life for God, right? So why didn't he burn out? Like, what did he know? What was at the center for him that's different than for so many of us? Well, you find this out in Philippians 3. See, he's just gotten finished listing out all of these accomplishments, all the things that could have given his life meaning. But then he says this in verse 8. He says, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. He's like, I don't care about the rest. I just want him. To the point that he adds this in verse 10, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and share or fellowship in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. See, underneath all of the doing for Paul, there is this sense of withness, isn't there? It's sweet. This is what the older brother missed. He did all of this stuff for his father, but missed that he got to be with his father. You see, some of us are trying to live our life under God. And others of us are trying to live life over God. And others of us are trying to live our life from God and others are trying to live their life for God. But here's what God is after. Life with God. Life with God. This is what he's been after since the beginning that we would be with him, that he would be with us. It started with God in Genesis, right? He creates Adam and Eve, places them in a garden and says, it says that he walked with them in the cool of the day. 
And it all culminates one day in Revelation 21, we see where this great promise that behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. And this all because of the one that the prophet Isaiah, middle of the Bible prophesied about, that he would come our Emmanuel, God with us, Jesus Christ himself. And he has come and in his life and in his birth and in his death on the cross and his resurrection from the grave, his ascension to heaven and the intercession now through prayer on our behalf that he would move us from the exile of the garden, that that would not be the end of the story, but he would lead us then into the new heavens and the new earth where we will dwell with him and he will dwell with us forever and ever and ever. Somebody say amen. And this brings us back to Genesis 39.2, where it says the Lord was with Joseph. Because in some small way, Joseph knew this. In some small way, he got this. Because Joseph, you have to know, it's not like you read his story and go, oh yeah, God's totally with him. No, not at all. Like, here's what I mean. He's got nearly a dozen brothers. And although he's dad's favorite, all that does is set him up for pain and disaster throughout the story. His brothers throw him into a pit to die. And as if that's not bad enough, they say, you know what? Let's actually make some money off him. They sell him for 20 pieces of silver and he becomes the victim of human trafficking by his own flesh and blood. He goes off to the highest bidder, a guy named Potiphar, whose wife apparently took a liking to him. But because Joseph refused her advances over and over, he ends up being falsely accused by her, thrown into prison for doing the right thing. And there he spends multiple years rotting there. On and on the story goes. And yeah, there's eventually a great turnaround and a killer ending But it's in the middle of all of this pain of betrayal and being cheated out and forgotten that this verse is written multiple times in chapter 39, that the Lord was with Joseph. My point is this, you and I don't have to wait until we're second in command to Pharaoh in Egypt to recognize that God is with us. You can be in prison. You can be falsely accused. You can be in the pit. You can be the victim of horrible mistreatment. And all the while you can know that God is with you here. Joseph learned this and and so can we, but how? Right, like how can we now caught in the middle between the garden of Genesis and the new heavens and new earth of Revelation choose this posture of life with God and grow in it today? Well, it starts by recognizing that God in Christ has first come to be with us. That's where it starts. That Jesus endured the pit of despair 
the betrayal of friends and family, that he was outed, he was ousted, forsaken, left to die and abandoned. And yet in the midst of all of this trouble and suffering, in the midst of his agony, while dying even on the cross, he stood there suspended between heaven and earth, able to say that God is with you even here. Like that's what we see on the cross, that God in fact suffering with us. And that as a psalmist in Psalm 139, we too can declare, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I, make, if I go into heaven, behold, you're there. If I make my bed in the grave, behold, you are there. Jesus shows us that God is with us even here. Who else needs to hear that this morning? That God is here with you in that diagnosis. That he is with you in that breakup. That he is with you in this pain, in this distress, in this loss. He has never left you. He will never forsake you. God is with you. So for all of us now, caught here in the middle of whatever mess it is that we find ourselves in, here are two rhythms that you and I can put into practice now to help us grow in our life with God. The first is this. Communicate with God. Communicate with God. This is about setting specific times to talk to and listen to God. I'm talking about prayer. I'm talking about reading the Bible, fasting, and whatever it is that gives you that heart to heart with Jesus. We're doing a church-wide Bible reading plan right now through Luke and Acts, which you can learn more about in the lobby and also on the Heart of Life website. And you are welcome to join in now still to be part of this reading plan with us if you haven't already. But this is about intentional, organized time between you and God communicating with God. So that's the first, but here's the second. Commune with God. Commune with God. See, this is the moment-by-moment awareness of God's presence. That God is with me here. In this moment, in this place. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, not over there, but literally, listen to this. God will not meet you anywhere except right when and where you are. God will not meet you over there. He won't meet you over there. He will meet you only right when and where you are. This is the only moment that God will encounter you in this. Does that make sense? Only when and where you are. But it is hard to know this, right? Or at least to recognize that God's presence is actually with me here. Unless, of course there was a way to somehow calibrate or tune our hearts to recognize the sound of his voice. And that's why the communication piece every single day, sometimes multiple times a day is so key. See, some of you know that I majored in music in college and a few of my classmates had this thing called perfect pitch, which is like a life hack for music majors. Because perfect pitch means that they could recall and produce the exact note that they want just out of memory. Like I could say, hey, sing a B flat and they go, how did you know that? Like, how did you, there's all these notes. How did you know that was a, 
Well, that's cool, right? That's amazing. But the rest of us normal human beings had to go through something called ear training, which basically helps you develop something called relative pitch. (laughs) It's not perfect pitch, but relative pitch. And relative pitch is the ability to find a note and to recognize a note in relation to some other note that's been given to you. So for example, whenever I get a text message on my iPhone, it dings at a C natural. I can't even produce that for you because you know I'm, I have relative pitch instead, but that's it. That's a C natural. So I get a text message. And I, okay, great. It's a C. Well, why is that helpful? Well, let's say I'm, I'm playing the piano and I'm, or I'm listening to a song. I'm listening to a song on the radio and someone says, hey, what note is that? I can't tell you. I don't have perfect pitch. But if I'm listening to a song on the radio and then my phone dings and I hear, right, that's the C. Then I can tell you, oh, that's a C. So it's in F major. And I can do that because I've trained my ear to recognize the sound. And I just want to tell you, Some people are spiritual savants. Like they just get it. They just wake up in the morning and they go, oh, God is with me here. And I'm so happy for you if that's you. Like that's so awesome. But for the rest of us that have to work at this, (laughs) this is the beauty of communicating with God through scripture and prayer, and fasting, and the like. Because by setting aside regular time to communicate with God daily, we daily become more aware of the sound of his voice in every moment so that I can recognize he's here with me. I believe it's possible to get to a point where I can look at a daisy and see that it's God talking to me. I believe that it's possible that I can get to a point where I can sit down and have a meal and realize that God is there with me. I believe it's possible to be in a pit in the Middle East, not even knowing where the story's gonna go and believe that God is with me even here. And I know this because of what Jesus has done. And so we communicate with God and we learn to recognize his voice and commune with God so that our hearts would know that God is with me here. So I have a series of questions I wanna offer to you now. Uh, You're welcome to take a picture of these, or I think they may end up in your life team sheets later uh, through the week. But in essence, they're just a diagnostic for us of which posture are we generally trending toward in our life. I know personally which one I tend toward, though if I'm honest, I kind of bounce between all the boxes from time to time. (laughs) But here's... A, question, a couple questions to consider. If life under God is your dominant approach, have you been bargaining with God? What are your if-then prayers? This week, take some time, write that down and consider what's my if-then prayer? My God, if, if, if uh, you do this, then I will do that. Identify those. Second one, life over God. Are you so entirely self-sufficient that God is not needed in your life? Consider, is God even needed to pull off your life? 
It was a stark realization for me to realize that so much of my life is managed and controlled that I actually don't even need, aside from the fact that God gives me breath and all that kind of stuff, I really don't need him to pull off my life. That's sad. I'm clearly not operating in the life with God that he wants for me. So in that case, is, if, if this is the case, then is God even in your life is the question. Next, life from God. Consider, if God never answered a single prayer of yours, is God still enough for you? If God never gave me what I wanted in life, would I still want to follow him? Do you only go to God when you need something from him? Last one, life for God. Do you feel burned out and bitter from all the ways you've been living for God? Just doing, 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 serving, Sunday school, uh, preaching, worship, uh, uh, life teams, all the things that you're doing for God. Do you find yourself burned out and bitter? Or do you find it difficult to celebrate others who seem to be enjoying God's grace? That may be indicative of a life for God. So this week, in your own personal time of reflection or in life teams or just personally, uh, consider which counterfeit posture do you tend to settle for when it comes to life with God? And then consider what might it look like to give up that posture for the better, truer life that God has always had for us. Well, if you haven't heard it yet, Give a listen to Toby Mac's song, 21 Years Sometime. Uh, 21 Years, he, he wrote this a little over a year ago after his son tragically died at the age of 21. And when prompted for a statement after his son's passing, which I think is incredibly insensitive, by the way. Like I cannot imagine being put on the spot like that. But Toby Mac composed himself. And he spoke this truth in a profound way. We're going to close with this. He says, we don't follow God because we have some sort of under the table deal with him. Like we'll follow you if you bless us. No, we follow God because we love him. It's our honor. He is the God of the hills and the valleys. And he is beautiful above all things. And then he adds, God didn't promise us a life of no pain and even tragic death. But he did promise that he would never leave us or forsake us. And I am holding dear to that promise. That is life with God. And that's the life that God has for you. So we're going to pray. And for anyone here today who feels like they just need some prayer, I'm gonna be down in the corner here by the cross and I'd love to pray with you. Whether that's giving your life to Christ for the first time and saying, I've been living a counterfeit life or if you've been following Jesus for years and years and years and you realize, wow, I've been striking a deal with him, life under God. Oh, wow, I've been trying to live all this stuff out for him, life for God. No, I wanna live life with God. I wanna pray with you today too. So I'll be there in the corner. Otherwise, let's pray right now. Father, I thank you for this time. I thank you for your goodness. And also, Lord, I just thank you that you are here with us even now. I pray that you would do what only you can do in this moment. Take this message deep into our hearts, that it would not just be words on a page, that it would not just be words on a screen, but it would be lived out realities in all of us. 
that we would not settle for anything less than the life with God that you have made possible from the beginning through the incarnation to the resurrection, ascension, and onward. God, we thank you that we can know you, but we ask that you would help us know you more. I pray for my my friends here this morning listening to the sound of my voice. Would they instead hear your voice? And would they come and talk with you, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.